Good morning. I've got lots of competition for the space behind my ears. I've got a mask, glasses, and a microphone. So just give me a moment while I disentangle myself. Um, how's that? The sound okay? Brilliant. Yeah, good morning. It's, um, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, I've not been attending, partly because I work in a school, and I, th I think it's probably a good idea for me not to to attend too much. Um, so it's really a, a great treat to be here this morning uh, with you in person. Um, I'm going to be reading from the book of Daniel. And um, I just thought it might be worth just giving a brief bit of context before I read from chapter 3. So um, the book of Daniel is um, it's a really interesting book. It's the first seven chapters are kind of historical in nature, and then the latter chapters are more prophetic in nature. Um, but Daniel and his companions um, were, were kind of prominent Jewish men who uh, were captured, essentially, um, by the Babylonians and the Babylonian king, um, Nebuchadnezzar. And they are kind of assimilated into that society. They're employed um, to be um, servants of the Babylonian king um, because they were talented. They were talented guys, um, but they were... Um, they tried to assimilate them culturally as well. They tried to persuade them to eat the same foods and to worship in the same way. Um, and those of you who know the book well will know that uh, Daniel and his friends kind of score a victory in, in the first chapter when they're asked to eat a particular kind of food and they refuse because it isn't their culturally appropriate, ceremonially appropriate diet. And they actually kind of win that battle. Um, and then uh, when we get to chapter 3, the focus uh, turns to Daniel's uh, companions, um, who we, we've already mentioned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden statue, an idol, and he commands that everyone should worship it. And um, we're going to punch in in the story in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, um, where some advisors of King Nebuchadnezzar, who I suspect are a little bit envious about Daniel and his friends and the victory that they scored in chapter 1 and chapter 2, are now kind of grassing them up and getting them in trouble for not worshipping this idol. So that's kind of where we are. Daniel 3, and I'm reading from verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, 
you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're continuing today our series reflecting on the stories of some of the great heroes of faith from the Bible, particularly those that trusted God even in the most difficult circumstances. Our heroes this morning um, are this famous triplet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Difficult to say. And I always just say Abednego when I was younger. Abednego is quite hard to say, isn't it? Um, from the book of Daniel. Uh, I've been practicing just for this morning. Um, these three men, alongside Daniel, choose to make a great stand despite fearsome opposition, trusting that God will honor their choice no matter the consequences. So, fun Bible quiz question for those of you who like to do a Bible quiz. Um, what are the real names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because their names are used a lot in their story, but it's not actually their real names. I don't know if you know that or not. What are the real names of Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego. I'll let you stew on that, and I'll reveal the answer in a moment. If you know, well done, because I didn't know. <laughs> I had to look it up. Um, it, it's a shame, actually, isn't it, that these incredible men of faith are mostly remembered by names given to them by their Babylonian captors. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not actually their real names. They're the kind of Babylonian versions of their names. I, I think it's a mark of the shame that they had to endure, actually, that their exploits and the things that they did for God are still attributed in this book to their Babylonian names rather than their kind of their real names. Daniel, by the way, is, is, is his original name. He's the only one of the four who's referred to by his original name. Um, indeed, the whole um, first seven chapters of this book is really a story of a small group of faithful people who hold tight to their God and they trust him even as their daily lives and even their very identities are assailed from all sides. This morning, we're thinking about what does it mean to trust God when we're under pressure? Or when the very world we thought we understood fundamentally changes? Sound familiar? That's what we're thinking about this morning. And for those of you who like the Bible trivia, their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were their actual names. And these guys are selected by King Nebuchadnezzar, after he ransacks Jerusalem, he pillages the temple, he slaughters many of the Hebrew people. And these four young men, amongst some others, are chosen because of their intelligence, because of their beauty, their nobility. They are impressive men. It's all the more interesting, I think, therefore, to reflect that they stand themselves apart for the quality of their trust rather than for their impressive achievements in their own strength. These are brilliant guys, but more importantly, they are humble servants of the living God. So we're told in chapter three of Daniel that King Nebuchadnezzar has decreed that all people must worship a golden image. And our first introduction to these great men is to find out that unlike all other peoples who live under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, these are, there are some Jews, just some Jews, who have refused to follow the rest and worship the king's golden idol. It would seem that even amongst the Jewish people that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they stand out as being particularly faithful and particularly defiant. We are told that they pay no attention and that they neither serve nor worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Now, this, of course, was a hugely brave thing to do. These men know the consequences of disobeying such a powerful ruler. King Nebuchadnezzar is particularly brutal. If you read the book, he's particularly brutal, even with his own advisors, when they don't agree with him. They would know that as foreigners in this land, their behaviors would be well noted. And if you go back and read Daniel 2, you'll see why these men might have made many enemies in the court of the king. And yet, despite their strong reputation, their newfound favor with the king, the possibility to make it big in this new land and new culture, despite all of those things, they choose to defy the king and they refuse to worship his idol. They choose to trust in their God. 
They choose to trust in their God. And they choose to stand on the first commandment that they are to have no other God but Yahweh. They trust their understanding that there is only one God and that he is the creator of the world, the Almighty, and that they are his chosen people. It is interesting to note that not all the Jews were aligned in this regard. We are told in verse 12 that there are some Jews who pay no attention to the king's decrees, which suggests to me that there may well have been others who took the safer road of conformity. Even amongst the community of faith, these four men stand apart as being particularly trusting of their God, even in the face of such fierce opposition. Later in the chapter, we have these three men speak about their trust in the living God. And what I find so refreshing about this moment when they speak to King Nebuchadnezzar is the lack of certainty in their words. The lack of certainty in their words. What do I mean by that? Well, they fully trust their God. And they're even willing to stand up to King Nebuchadnezzar, risking their death. But what I so enjoy about this great moment is that they are fully open to the possibility that God may not choose to save them. That God may not choose to save them. They do firstly state, he will deliver us from your hand, which I think is a different thing. But then they add this caveat, but even if he does not we will not serve your gods, even if he does not. And this for me is their most heroic and kind of faithful moment. This is no blind faith. They are fully aware that God might not directly intervene. And yet their trust of their God is not contingent on a miraculous intervention. They trust him because of who he is and because of who they are in relation to him. They do not trust God just because of the great things he's done or will do, but rather because he is God. And so they have no choice but to trust him. Sometimes we tend to believe that having faith or trusting God means that we shouldn't also have doubts. What if God doesn't save me? What if my friend doesn't become a Christian? What if I lose my job? The Psalms are full of questions and doubts, aren't they? And being a person of faith isn't the same thing as being certain about every challenge that we face. A great example is, is a Psalm quoted by Jesus on the cross, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. I don't know if you're in that place this morning. But listen to how the psalm, how this poem turns. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. As this psalm states and is reflected in our story in Daniel, during times of trouble we can trust in the identity of our God and our identity in him. The one thing we can be certain of during times of trouble 
is that we are children of God and that he loves us, that he gave his life for us, that he rose again, that he redeemed us and broke the yoke of slavery and the power of sin over our lives. These are the truths that we trust. But all of this does not mean that we will not have doubts or that God will always save us in the way that we expect. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were fully prepared to face death in this moment. I don't suppose they expected to survive the furnace in the way that they did. I imagine that they thought that if God was going to deliver them, it might be through someone's influence or perhaps an unexplained change of heart on the part of King Nebuchadnezzar some trick in the law or some change of direction. I don't believe they knew the finer details of God's plan for their lives. They just trusted their knowledge of who God was. They knew he was able to save them, should he choose to. And that was good enough for them. Now, like Pharaoh in Exodus, the figure of Nebuchadnezzar here, I think, exemplifies Antitrust, the opposite, antitrust. He is everything that our three heroes are not. Rather than trusting the God he cannot see, he, like many ancient rulers, sought to capture his gods in physical form and in his own image. It's likely that the idol he created would have been dedicated to the god Nabu, whose name formed the first element in Nebuchadnezzar's name. This idol, therefore, was in part an idol to himself. This narcissistic tendency in him is shown later in the passage through his response to the incredible faith of these three Jewish men. He orders that the fires of the furnace should be intensified to stoke the flames seven times hotter than before. This is a desperate act of coercion and control. As if the temperature of the furnace wasn't already hot enough to kill these men. It's posturing, it's pride. He orders and he commands. He is a man desperate to control. And yet he is faced with a level of faith and trust that he cannot comprehend. An idea that when we are weak, we are strong that sits outside his world view. His actions are opposite to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where they submit and trust, he seeks to command and control. And whilst it might be tempting to caricature this man as a pantomime villain, I would like to tentatively suggest this morning that his drive to control and increase his power is a fundamentally human trait. It's what the ancient Greeks called hubris and is a flaw in human nature that reaches right back to Genesis 3 and is in you and me too. It's interesting to note how Nebuchadnezzar's antitrust response actually leads to self-destructive behaviors. He harms his own people. We're told in verse 22 that his command is so urgent and the flame so intense that some of his own soldiers end up being consumed by the fire. Like many tyrants portrayed in the Bible, in seeking to control events, Nebuchadnezzar only ends up damaging himself 
and his people. Indeed, if we read on in the book of Daniel, we find that this once mighty king is reduced to the indignity of madness, eating grass like an animal. You read that later in the book of Daniel. He serves as a perfect foil to the other men who only go from strength to strength and a reminder to us that seeking to control the events of our circumstances will often lead to a weakening of our position. There is power in humility and trust. It is, of course, ultimately this power that leads Nebuchadnezzar to see the truth about who God is. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted completely, surrendering to God's will, it is the Lord who is ultimately glorified. Nebuchadnezzar is now under no illusion that their rescue is entirely God's doing and nothing to do with their talent. His response to their complete trust in their God is to see a glimpse of the truth about Yahweh's identity. It is their trust that glorifies the Father. I wonder whether our trust in the Father through this difficult period in our history might serve to be the strongest witness of our faith. I hope so. We should not be people of fear, even when the threats are very real. I hope that others see our trust. I hope they see our faith, our hope, our joy, even in such difficult circumstances, and therefore catch a glimpse of the source of our trust, our anchor in the storm, Jesus Christ. Because this moment points forward, doesn't it, to the work of Jesus on the cross. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prays, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. In that moment, Jesus chooses to trust the Father, knowing that the outcome would result in his horrific death. Jesus trusted in the garden, even though his immediate companions were clearly not yet ready to help launch his kingdom on earth. And on the cross itself, Jesus forgives his oppressors and calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A final act of trust in the good and perfect plans of the Father. And through this trusting, the Father and the Son are revealed and glorified. Finally, in return, God has chosen to trust you and me to be his witnesses here on earth. The great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations is an exercise in trust. He trusts us to be his hands and his feet here on earth. Sometimes that can feel like a heavy burden to bear particularly when cultural forces squeeze us on every side. But Jesus promises to be right there with us in the furnace. Indeed, he promises to his disciples in Matthew 28 is this, Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible story of your faithful servants who chose to trust in you even under the threat of death itself. 
We ask that you help us to trust you this week. We ask you to help us to be people of hope, people of faith, people of integrity. And in so doing, being witnesses to you, who you are and who you intend us to be. Thank you, Father, you've given us good reason to trust you. You are faithful. You have been faithful. You will continue to be faithful. Amen.